Never has there been such applause as I approach the, the pulpit. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> no, 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 please, please. Cut that out. What is, what is this, man? This is not a carnival. This is a, the time for us to continue in our, in our worship, and particularly in our worship of our Lord um, and His sovereign care for us. And sovereign is the underlying word as uh, we begin um, our study in the, in the book of Job. So would you turn there to the book of Job as, uh, we, um, as we walk through um, some of the introductory matters that will kind of, you know, kind of lead us, uh, I, I think, for probably through this year and maybe part of next year. And you might be thinking, wow, the book of Job, like over a year and a half, what in the world? Like, you know, because everything you know about Job, you probably already know about Job, right? Like everything that we share in common in terms of the story of Job, everybody already knows. One, he was a really godly man. We all know that, right? He's a good dude. Then Satan gets in God's ear, and then all of a sudden, all this bad stuff. I mean, every conceivable bad thing happens to Job. Loses all of his children, loses all of his fortune, loses his health. He just becomes homeless from being the richest man in the East to becoming homeless. He's sitting there suffering, right? Encouraged by his very wife to curse God and die. And then discouraged by friends accusing him of, of, you know, of not confessing the reason why God is doing this to him. Not understanding or hearing from God, suffering... And then finally, the Lord appears, and then Job repents, and then God restores everything. All of that that I've told you, you already know. But all of that that I've told you covers only the first two chapters and the last half of the last chapter of the book of Job. There are 42 chapters in the book of Job. So there must be something that the Lord wants us to consider in this extensively long book covering the suffering of a godly man. Not just merely that he was godly, that he suffered badly, and that God renewed him. But that there are things to consider in between. There are questions that we really should ask ourselves. Questions like, where is God when everything goes wrong? Questions like, why do bad things happen to legitimately good people? Questions about how God and His sovereignty uh, oversteps and, and, and continues uh, to be true in spite of everything that is broken and sin-filled and out of control in this world. Questions like, how do we maintain our spiritual sanity? When so much bad things happen that there is not a clear, direct explanation for. I mean, man, if if that's not enough for you, right? Um, then, Then you're living under a rock. Because this is the experience of an actual man who loved the Lord. 
who did not hear anything from the Lord for potentially months. We don't know how long this extensive suffering was, who dialogued with other individuals who were religious and who were thoughtful about the way that they thought about God. And they interacted and they dialogued and they debated and they thought through what suffering for righteous individuals was like. And through it all, let this be a spoiler, at the end, God doesn't even show up and go, Job, I'm going to explain it all to you. You know what he does? He shows up and says, wait, who are you? You're the worm that I created. And I'm the living God. So tell me how you, the clay, get to speak to me and demand an accounting of what I allow in life when I'm the potter. He just establishes the categorical difference between creator and creature. And that's enough for Job to repent in dust and ashes. And that's the only explanation we really get. If that's dissatisfying to you, man, the book of Job might be greatly dissatisfying because we're going to keep building up argument after argument, thought after thought. We're going to pursue this line of reasoning and this line of reasoning. And when we get to the very end, God just shows up and everybody shuts up. That is the story of his sovereignty of his greatness, but underlying that is a hope that can only come from a living God. And I think that's the key to understanding the book of Job generally. And then, more specifically, we'll look at some of the things that are to come. But let me let me pray for us. I won't read our passage yet because I want to do a little bit in terms of the outline of Job, give you some general things in terms of the book, and then we want to dive into verses 1 through 5, which is what we're looking at here, the introduction to Job. And in verses 1 through 5, life as it should be. But let, let's pray and ask the Lord for grace for our time in the Scriptures this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray to thank you for our new members that have joined us. What a privilege and blessing to know that you have, um, you have given them a testimony of your grace. Lord, we know that every life that has been called by your, by your sovereign grace to rejoice in the sacrifice of your Son for the forgiveness of sins, every life is precious. And every life that is renewed, that is given a new life, is, is not just precious but unique. In each of those new members, they have a different story of how you have rescued them from their sin. As each member, as every Christian, has a different story. But the common factor is always your son and the living hope of Jesus Christ, crucified and raised again. And may we, even after we begin this study of Job and throughout, be reminded of that same hope that must extend beyond the difficulties and even the blessings of this life. That we must look to something greater than the here and now. Otherwise, it's just a a matter of time or misfortune that will undo us. But Lord, may our faith be strong like Job. May Job be a paragon, an example to us of what it means to walk with God despite every difficult circumstance and to find your glory and your goodness to be sufficient. We praise you for our study that is to come and for the many weeks that we will look to this particular book. May it enrich our thinking and give us great wisdom 
in how to think about the goodness of our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are introducing the book of Job. And so I'm going to try to do this in just like five minutes, right? Give you an outline and kind of some themes that I think are present in the book of Job that would be helpful to us before we unpack verses one through five. But the outline of Job generally can be this. So each of those numbers represents chapters. And we can talk about Job's suffering described. In other words, he's a righteous man. Then everything, the bottom falls out and everything goes bad. All of that takes place in chapters one and two. Then, in the longest portion of the book of Job, chapters 3 to 26, is Job's suffering as it is discussed. And I say discussed generally because really there are three cycles of dialogues in in chapters 3 to 26. There are three friends, right? Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they, they literally go from, you know, the nicest to the not-so-nice, to the playing-out, judgmentally mean, right? And each of them have things that are true to be said about God. So theologically, they come from a place of knowing who God is. But they also say some things that are not true about Job and about how God works and the system of religion that is set in place. And you'll find that they are often binary. Binary. Do you guys know what that means? Black and white. You're getting punished, all right? Nobody suffers unless they're getting punished. And if you're getting punished, you sinned. Job, confess your sin. It's, it's kind of that argument in different emphases with other things. And what you might find in those arguments, if you look carefully, is that we often find ourselves expressing the same arguments as New Covenant grace-filled believers, trying to comfort one, each, one another, trying to encourage one another with an attitude towards sin and God that often sounds like we have God right, we have some things about righteousness right, but where we go from there sounds more like judgment, sounds more like this, you deserve this, or something I did, or something you did has brought this upon us. And I think the entire dialogue is meant to express to us that God allows some things to happen that have nothing to do directly, proportionally, with something that you have done against him. So there are three cycles, right, of dialogues. You know, Eliphaz speaks, then Job replies. Bildad speaks, Job replies. Zophar speaks, Job replies. There's three cycles of that, right? And then there are three monologues in chapters 27 through 41. And by monologues, I mean that Job says, okay, this is my final defense. This is what's going on. And he gives his monologue in defense in chapters 27 through 31. Then Elihu, not one of the three friends, but a young man who kind of comes from nowhere, steps in and he enters a monologue where he gives his defense of God and his his rebuke of Job in chapters 32 through 37. Job doesn't reply to that. Instead, then God comes in a whirlwind in chapters 38 through 41. And it's God's monologue response to all the above. And then the final chapter, all right, is Job's repentance and his restoration in chapter 2. That, that's the general outline of Job. So if you, if you care to take a deeper dive and to read that yourself, you'd be much encouraged and probably be more prepared for even our times together around the book of Job as we think about it. Now, I need to go through this fairly quickly. So let's say some things about the book of Job. When does the book of Job take place in terms of the time? Circa 2000 B.C. 
It's the, it's the age of uh, the patriarchs, right? Uh, why do I say that? Well, there's a few reasons uh, that, that Job suggests that he takes place, or all of this takes place, in the time of like Abraham, or maybe even earlier. Okay, so think about this. Now, we have Abraham, then he, at 100 years old, he has Isaac, right? And Isaac has, right, Esau, Jacob. Jacob is Israel, has 12 kids, the tribes of Israel. Eventually, one of the tribes, Judah, bears a king. Right? If you follow that, that's like hundreds of years right, of history, which is the predominance of the Old Testament. But Abraham comes out of nowhere from Ur of the Chaldeans. So if you can imagine, right, I was going to put up slides for pictures, but this was also supposed to take five minutes, which is almost up. Right? If Israel is here, and I'm doing this backwards, right, so that you can think about it. If Israel is here, right, and I think I'm right, this is the West, right? So here's, here's um, uh, the Mediterranean Sea. Israel's along the coast. Right along the middle of Israel is the Jordan River, right, as, as, its, as its eastern edge that spills into the Dead Sea. So here's the Jordan, right? And then to the east of that will be where Uz, the ancient Uz, is from. Abraham, right, similar time period, maybe a little after Job, will be from Ur of Chaldeans way over here. Anything east of the river and of the Jordan Valley is just called the east. We'll talk more about that when we get there. But all this to say that, that there are reasons to think that Job should be placed in the age of the patriarchs, maybe pre-Abraham. One is Job's age. When you add up how long he lived after these events, and these events in chapter 1 uh, tell us that his children are all grown up and adults. My children are not all grown up and adults, right? When they get there, I'll be probably in my like, early 60s. So let's say he just had a bunch together, and so he's like in his 50s, right? Let's just say he's in his 50s when all of this begins to take place. He lived 140 years after all of these events, so you add the 50, and you're talking about he lived about 200, maybe 210 years? Who lived? All we have to do is look in the genealogies to figure out who lived that long in the book of Genesis, and you don't find that kind of age except back in the time of Abraham and earlier. Because afterwards, the age, the average age of each individual, every generation, goes down until it reaches pretty quickly our average age. People live till like 80. That's like, that's good stuff, bro. You done well, right? You must have eaten well, lived clean. Well, so, so Job's age suggests that he is in that patriarchal period, right? His wealth seems to be measured in livestock. Again, not in gold and silver and precious metals. Like, like not in coinage, but in livestock. His brother had a bunch of stuff, Right? oxen and sheep and female donkeys what's that about right he has all this stuff that's how they measure his wealth and again similar to abraham who was measured and he was extremely wealthy he had a whole bunch of and the same things including i'm just giving this away because it's going to come up in our exposition but camels which by the time of the mosaic law is considered an unclean animal so if he lived in the time of the law why, why would he have camels? See, that, that suggests that he is pre-law, pre-Jacob, pre-kingdom, pre-temple, right? Pre-Abraham. Abraham was the other man of faith that was known to have a whole bunch of camels because, again, it wasn't, 
considered unclean at this point. He acts as the priest of his family. And that's not, that's not okay by the Mosaic law. You don't get to just sacrifice because you feel like it, right? You go to the temple, and the priest has to do that. There's a very particular order to the sequence of how you go and you sacrifice. But he just seems to kind of willy-nilly do it whenever he feels like. Again, age of the patriarchs. That's exactly how the patriarchs worked. Their worship was based on family um, headship and shepherding. So there's no mention of Israel. There's no mention of a temple. There's no mention of tribes or the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. And then the name of God, Shaddai, is a particularly interesting one, right? El Shaddai means God Almighty, and it comes up uh, often in the, in the book of Job. And um, in fact, so often that Job, the book, uses this particular name of God 31 times, and the rest of the entirety of the Old Testament uses it 17 times more. It is often used in connection with Abraham in the giving of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 17, etc. And so, again, the language of how God is addressed seems to suggest that this book is old, the story is old, and it comes from 2000 B.C. or further back. All right, that was way too long. The author is unknown. You just have to accept that. Um, some have suggested Job, Elihu, Moses, other prophets. Um, Moses might be a good guess because if he's way from the east, right, then Midian would be really, really close by. Remember, Moses spent 40 years um, in the Midian desert, right, uh, shepherding goats. Remember that? And so if, if, uh, if, if he had interacted with this story, if he received this story, then, then the Lord might have used Moses um, to write this book. But all of that, unknown. Right? Key verses, Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. This describes exactly what is taking place. That Job is trying to hope in God, whom he hasn't heard from. And he's saying, even if he kills me, I will still find my hope in him. Right? But I still want to make an argument that this is kind of weird. Right? That's, that's the story of Job, his motivation. There's also Job 37, 23 to 24. The Almighty, Shaddai, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own counsel. And that will be applicable not just to Job, but his friends. Right? There's a connection to Christ. Um, he acknowledges that there's a Redeemer. That famous passage in Job 19, 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end, at the last, He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Remember, this is pre-law. This is pre-Moses. Potentially pre-Abraham. And here he is, Job, speaking about the potential of not just being redeemed, but that a redeemer will come, and that even though he dies, in his flesh he will still somehow, after death, see his redeemer and see God, and he knows that he will behold that one. That's remarkable, right? He doesn't know the person of Christ, not yet, but he acknowledges that a redeemer will come. He cries out for mediator often, and I'm just going to say this quickly. Job 9.33 
There's no arbitrator between us, right? Job 33, 23. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of a thousand, to declare to man what is right for him. So he's constantly saying there needs to be a mediator between me and the living God. He is perfect and righteous, yes. And I'm a sinner, yes. But, right, like there's something that is disconnected here. Something is not going right. And then he, right, Job is the example of the suffering servant, of a suffering servant. He, he is much like the Isaiah 53 suffering servant. 53.3 in Isaiah says he was despised, speaking of the suffering servant. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted, acquainted with grief. And as one, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. It's like he's an example of another godly man that is to come. Job is a sinner. He acknowledges his sin. He even repents from his sin. And in their dialogues, he confesses that he has sin issues, but none that he knows of that deserve directly, proportionally, this level of suffering. But he acknowledges that he has a sin nature. There will be coming one that is a servant of Yahweh that will have no sin. And yet, similarly, he will suffer for something that he directly did not deserve. Job is an example of that, right? Hebrews 4.15 talks about that as well, that Jesus is a high priest who is, un, who, is, who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one that in every respect has been tempted as we are, but is without sin. All right, that was a huge introduction, and now we must blast through verses 1 through 5. That's okay. That's okay. We'll have plenty of time to consider the person of Job as we go along. But um, let me read to you then. No, no, we won't do that. We'll just dive right in, right? Introducing Job. So let's get to the, the first five verses as an introduction to this godly man. All right, and here's, here's where we're going. Job is a godly man. He is an extremely blessed man. And he is a sincerely devout man. Let's begin with the idea that he is a godly man, all right, in verses one. In verse one. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He was a man of Uz. And let me start by saying that he was a real person. Job was a real person. The reason why I say that, because as you read that, right, if it was just separated from everything else and every other, with, without any context to the rest of the Scripture, it sounds, it begins, it opens... There was a man in the land of Oz whose name was Job. It sounds like an epic fantasy tale. It sounds like fiction, right? A legendary epic. There was this man. There's no genealogy. Do you guys notice like every major godly significant historical figure in the Old Testament is given a genealogy? And it's not by surprise and absolutely intentional that when Jesus is born, is given his genealogy in the New Testament, Right? He's in the lineage of the kings. But there's no genealogy. Job is a real person without genealogy. So you might think, okay, maybe he's not real, but he has mentioned in Scripture a couple of times. Ezekiel 14, verses 14 and verse 20. It's not Ezekiel speaking. It's Ezekiel writing what God is speaking. And God is judging the nation and saying, man, this nation is so messed up. Ezekiel 14, 14, he says, even if these three men... Noah, Daniel, and Job were in this nation. They could only deliver their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. He's saying Israel is so messed up 
that even if these three godly men, and God names them, Noah, Daniel, Job, they could only rescue themselves. Their righteousness could not help the rest of these guys. That's God speaking in Ezekiel 14. And then in the New Testament, James 5, 11 says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He names Job as if he is real, and we are to take Job as being a genuine and real man, a man of Uz, right? Uz is a, a relatively uncertain location. In verse 3, it says that he was the greatest of all the people of the east. So Uz is to the east. Well, I already gave you, right, the air atlas. We did that already, right? So, so Uz is just outside to the east. And if you are, right, from the reference point of an Israelite who lives, right, in Jerusalem, near the Mediterranean Sea, right, across the Jordan, Jordan Valley, by the way, the Jordan Valley is where, remember, Abraham and Lot separated, and Lot decided to go which direction? To the east, to the Jordan Valley, to the good valley area, and that's where he ended up going south and settling in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Not, not, not the greatest of decisions along that, right? But to the Israelite, whose entire reference point is Israel, this nation along the coast, and Jerusalem, Anything east of the Jordan and the Jordan Valley, that's just the east. Can I also mention that if you were attending flock, um, Matthew chapter 2 was our discussion last week. And do you remember there were magi, wise men? Where'd they come from? From the east. So the east, it was the wild, wild east. You know, like in our American history, we think about the wild, wild west. It's the wild, wild east. Right? And, and later, right, in, this, in, the same pa- in the same chapter, when calamity strikes, it would be Sabians and Chaldeans, nomadic tribes, raiding his people, stealing stuff. Can I say this? Another reason why it's got to be the patriarchal age, Chaldeans have a nation, a place. They don't need to go marauding. Sabians, the same thing by the time you get to uh, most of the Old Testament time period. This is an ancient time, and as a man of Uz, he is disconnected. He is out in the Qadim, the east, right? He is probably near Midian or Aram. And it's a place that is wild with nomadic tribes, with cities. He's a city man, as we'll see, right? And with all of that that is going on, as a man of Uz, the point is he's not an Israelite. There is no law. There's no Israel. Right? Jacob's not even born yet. There's no tabernacle. This is a guy like Abraham. Abraham was called from Ur of the Chaldeans, right? Way over here. He lives here, but before there is an Israel or anything. So in that sense, Job lived, loved, and believed in God apart from a nation a land or a people. He predates Abraham as a worshiper of God and as a worshiper of the one true God. He is in a faraway place, Ur, not Israel. He is from a different culture, not our culture. He is a pagan as far as Gentiles, right, and Jews are concerned. There's not even Jews yet. But he is a follower of Yahweh before there was even a law. 
He is in every way outside of the culture of the Old Testament theocracy and nation. Can I say he's also outside the culture of the New Testament church? But his godliness and his suffering, because he's outside of all of that, he becomes universally applicable. Doesn't matter where you come from or where you're going, the things that happen to Job are real life issues. Doesn't matter what context you grew up in, what context you're moving to, the things that happen to Job are legitimate. This is the man from Ur, a real person, a real godly person, who went through a whole lot of mess. The second thing we learn in, in verse 1 is that phrase, and that man was blameless and upright. Blameless, you know, the old King James trans, translates this word perfect, which is unfortunate because I think that conjures in us this idea of sinlessness, and that's not what this word is meant to, to, to speak to. It's a word that is used when it's used of, of, of sacrificial lambs. It means spotless or without blemish. The idea is that Job is not a sinless person, but a person that walks with the Lord in full humility and with sincerity, repenting and seeking the Lord. We would use in the New Testament, we would use the terminology, he's a man above reproach. Is he a sinner? Yes, he admits that. Generally speaking, that he has sin and sin issues and he has the potential for sin and he needs to guard his eyes from sin and his, protect his heart. But with that, having said that, there is nothing particular at any given moment that he hasn't either repented of or thought about and tried to put away. He's above reproach. He's a good man, as the Lord might say it. He is blameless in his human capacities. He is upright, is the second word, and that means straight. That's the Proverbs 3, 6. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make your paths straight. That's the word upright, yasar. It depicts faithfulness to God's statutes. That's statutes, not statues. I remember as a kid, I would read like statutes, and I'd go, dude, why does God have so many statues? You know, we got to obey his statues, and what does the statue say, right? It's his statutes. It, a, a better maybe English word for us would be God's principles. The idea is not so much that he checks off each law legalistically, calculatedly, like a computer, but instead that he is an honest and sincere individual. That he follows God's principles. If God desires and delights in this thing, then he tries to be part of that. He cares about such things that God cares about. Yesar, in fact, this idea of upright or straight, um, is often used in the Old Testament of the term justice. It's, it's not so much about keeping the law perfectly, but the kind of justice that means that you treat others fairly, honestly, and mercifully. It's you do well. In other words, how would God, what's God's principle in terms of how you should conduct yourself with others? Well, that's the right, the upright way to treat others. And so the two combined probably suggest that as far as his relationship with the Lord, right, he's blameless. He conducts himself above reproach. And that in terms of his relationship with others, he is upright. Not sinless. There's nothing particular, right? There's nothing particular that we could point our finger at and say, this is, this is Job's problem. Having said that, there's nothing particular that we could point at, that his friends can point at, or even Job is willing to point at, that could say, this is the reason why God is doing this to me. Can I say something else? It's interesting that all the friends recognize that God is doing this. 
has come uh, um, at least one um, uh, theologian did his uh, dissertation on Job and how Job is paralleled or connected to God's sovereignty in Romans. It's another reason why it's a good time to kind of look at Job because we talked about God's sovereignty and how he is sovereign, he's in control, even sending those things that are, that are hurtful, that are troublesome, that are difficult, and that he is absolutely free to do as he wills. But like the book of Job um, expresses, everyone that's speaking acknowledges God's full sovereignty and that all of this calamity, God could stop. God could stop. God could stop. He has sent this to you. The question is why? That's part of, you know, them growing in. Blameless and upright, he feared God and turned from evil. Fearing God is, uh, is, um, is that Old Testament concept of having a reverence, a sincere um, willingness to, to follow God, to be reverent of him and to be fearful of dishonoring him. It is unfortunate that in our English, the word fear predominantly involves terror and frightfulness. The idea in the Old Testament is that you fear God, and that gives you wisdom, that causes you to love Him, that makes you not cower before an offended deity, but to become devout and careful about honoring Him and being thoughtful about not dishonoring Him. The point is that, that Job loves and fears God, that he is devout, he cares about God, he lives in awe of God, and he is deeply conscious of trying to please him in all of his life. He is an excellent believer. And the second phrase is he turns away from evil. If the positive, right, if the positive is that he fears God, then the negative is he turns away from evil as part of fearing God. It's the Old Testament way of speaking of the concept of repentance. To turn away from evil, and and these two are often, by the way, in the Old Testament combined or put next to each other, like in Proverbs 3, 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Think of the Lord in a certain way and turn away from evil. Repent from evil so that the fear of the Lord is realized, activated, lived out in your life. The point is simply this. He is a godly man, mature and steadfast. He's a good man, worshipful, self-controlled, and sacrificial. He is truthful. He is gracious. He is what we would aspire to be even as followers of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ, who we follow, was known for those very same attributes but in its absolute fullness. There was no nature of sin in Jesus. There is a nature of sin in Job. And Job confesses that. He recognizes that. He is not perfect. And God is not declaring him perfect when he says that he is a good and excellent man. He's just a model believer, a model man of faith in God, a paragon of the godly man. And if you think about like like Psalm 1, if, if, if as the year has turned, you're reading the book of Psalm, you'd begin with Psalm 1, which is kind of like the introduction to the rest of the Psalms, Right? There, there is in verses 1 to 3 this idea of the blessed man. And blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Listen, Psalm 1, 1 through 3 is Job. 
We can say that because look at point number two. Not only is he a godly man, he's an extremely blessed man. He is a blessed man. Look at verse two. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. And you think, okay, woo, man, that brother was busy, right? But it's not just that his, you know, that his wife was very fruitful, but there were seven sons and three daughters. And the number suggests to us the idea of uh, an ideal, full, complete family. The number seven in particular is used symbolically throughout the Old Testament for the idea of fullness. Um, three, uh, similarly, occasionally is used that way. The two combined ten children, right? That's considered another full term. Like numbers are used that way, and, and I, I don't know why, but that's just kind of the way it is. But let me give you an example. The last time we were in the Old Testament, we studied through the book of Ruth. I, I believe that was the last time we were in the Old Testament. And towards the end of, of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4, verse 14 and 15, listen to what it says about children. The women gather around Naomi and they say, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you as a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him, has given birth to Obed who will give birth to Jesse, who will give birth to David, who will become the king, right? So the lineage of promise flows through the birth of Obed from Boaz and Ruth, and Naomi, the mother-in-law who had no grandchildren and no hope, has found a daughter-in-law so faithful and loving that they're saying, man, she is better to you than seven sons. Why seven? I don't know. But it's expressed in some sense of fullness, like our word dozen, right? We buy eggs in the dozen, unless you go to Costco, I know, I know. <laughs> dozen and a half, they keep messing everything up, right? But you're supposed to buy eggs in a dozen. If I go to Trader Joe's and I grab the eggs and I go, hey, listen, I only want nine. So can you subtract three, take them out, right? I just want nine. Don't be charging me for 12, right? I want, no, we kind of talk about it as dozens. It's a, there's something complete about that. Think about it this way. You're buying a minivan, right? And you're thinking, man, Lord, if you would be kind, I would like a full minivan of kids. Five children. There's seven of us. Yes, the modern minivan can seat eight, but seven, and there's still a passageway for easy access to the back row. This is perfect. This is a complete number. It's a number of perfection. That, that's exactly the point, all right? He, he, the entirety of saying that he had seven sons and three daughters was to say that, man, the Lord blessed him in a way that made him idyllic. Like, this, this is crazy. He is so blessed, it's weird, right? It's marvelous, perfect. Even the number of kids, absolutely what it should be. Can I say a side note? I just want to say this because I always thought it was weird. At the end of Job, you guys know how the story ends. Otherwise, I'm giving away the spoiler. But God renews everything, right? In fact, God literally doubles everything in the last chapter, verse 10, 42, 10, it says the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So remember he had, oh, we're going to see in a moment, he had 7,000 sheep. Well, he gets 14,000. It's literally the numbers are doubled. And when it comes to children, he has children again, seven sons and three daughters. And I always thought, man, that's kind of, like without thinking carefully, I always thought, man, that's kind of sad. Like, it's like the old set of daughters and sons, like, they're dead. Here's a new set, right? You'd be mistaken. Because unlike the, the, the cattle and the livestock, 
and all his wealth, which God literally doubled as he promised, when God speaks of his children and he doubles them, does he give them 14 sons and six daughters? No. Or actually, yes. He gives them seven and three. To say that the lost ones are still yours. They're just gone. Something precious about that, that the Lord loves this family and this man. How idyllic, right? How, that's the whole point. He is an empty nester at the pinnacle of his life. His adult children seem to be faithful and independent, and we'll see in a moment they love each other. It's a good, happy family. And he's at the heart of that. Blessed man in terms of his family. Blessed man in terms of extraordinary prosperity. Look at verse 3. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Listen, considering that there are many nomadic tribes, that there are small city-states, they wouldn't even consider themselves city-states. They're just kind of cities. Job was clearly, based on the kind of animals that he possessed, he was clearly a farmer, right? Because he had 500 yoke of oxen. By, by yoke, they mean pears. There's a lot of plowing to do, apparently. He owned a lot of farmland, right? There, there are 7,000 sheep, and so there's more wool than you could actually use, more meat than you can actually eat. And so that was a, a tremendous amount. And so he hired people probably to shepherd them. Because there's too many. His family couldn't do that alone. There's 3,000 camels. Remember we said Mosaic law, camels are considered unclean. And so if he was a Jew following the law, he wouldn't have camels at all. But 3,000 suggests that he's involved in caravan trades. He had, he had to hire people to do that as well. Right? And it goes on and on. 500 female donkeys. There is a different term for female donkeys than male donkeys in Scripture. Not just uh, the changing of, of, of the ending to make it feminine or masculine. I think that's, that's interesting, right? I think it's like geese and gander. It's kind of weird, right? So, so there's an emphasis on these are female donkeys, maybe because then you get some milk from donkeys. I don't know if you drink milk from donkeys, but you get milk from donkeys. You can have more donkeylings, right? Look, this, this is good stuff. He is very wealthy with very many servants, which you'd need to take care of all these. Now think about this. In that period of time, a city might have maybe a few hundred people, maybe a really large version of these cities, might be a few thousand people. This brother has 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, right? 1,000 ox, but you call them pairs or yoked together, it's 500 pairs, 500 female, many servants. I mean, this guy is wealthy beyond imagination so that he is the greatest of the people to the east. And we, we read Psalm 1. Isn't this exactly what's supposed to happen in a system that is binary, that is A plus B equals C? If a man loves the Lord and is a godly man, he is like a tree firmly planted, firmly planted by streams of water, right? Bears his fruit in his season. His leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he what? He prospers. This is Job. This is life as it should be. If we ended here and the entire book of Job was only like three verses long, we'd say, amen, that should be the introduction to the book of Proverbs. Because that's exactly what the introduction to the Psalms suggests that life should be. 
This is exactly, right, the prosperity gospel, only it's legit, not fake. You follow God, you love him with all your heart, and he pours blessing upon blessing into your life. This is the godly man, and as in the midst of his godliness, God has blessed him exceedingly. He's a godly man, he's a blessed man. Finally, he's a devout man. He's a devout man. Look at verse 4 and 5. So we read about his family, we read about his possessions, and we turn again to his family. And it says in verse 4, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Right? I would say simply this. He was a good and faithful father. Why do I say that? Well, because his sons, they're adults, and each has their own house. Again, a, a matter of great affluence, but also of tender affection amongst the siblings. The sons were all old enough to have their own household, and into their house, they would invite all of them, including their sisters, to come and have a party, to celebrate. And it says this phrase, of each one on his day, and we don't know exactly what that means. Um, There is no Mosaic calendar. There's nothing particular in terms of religious holidays or festivals that we know of. So more likely than not, this is probably something like a birthday, right? When is Job Jr. number one? When it was his birthday, he would say, hey, dude, my birthday's coming up. You guys all come, my treat, and we're just going to relax and enjoy and laugh and sing and play, you know, patriarchal charades, whatever we do. Like, we're going to have some fun and enjoy each other's company for a few days. It was a good thing. There's no evidence of overindulgence. There's no impropriety, right? There's no sense that they were just kind of enjoying their affluence and just kind of enjoying themselves to the point of sin. In fact, Job would be, you know, apprehensive and careful that that's not the case. But for their part, what is reported about him, it seems that they get along, they like each other, they're close siblings, they loved each other. This just adds blessing on top of blessing for Job, the good father. He should not and no parent should receive any particular or great glory that their kids have come to walk in faith, right? We often give them too much credit. But we can say this, that at the least he must have done his part to kind of shepherd them in a way that they learn to love each other and care for each other. It was a good family. And let me just say this, the holidays just recently passed. And many of us, Many of us here, we understand the difficulties of family gatherings because you may have come from broken or dysfunctional families. Maybe you feel like you, know, you can't easily relate to this kind of experiential joy in the gathering of siblings and the blessing of parents and children. And whatever those particular reasons might be of why it is all broken and, and destroyed, we know that the underlying issue is the effect of sin in our lives and our relationships. Those are real things that real people have to struggle through. This is not Job's experience. He is a godly man and he was a tremendously blessed man when it comes to family. His life is almost too good to be true. But can I say this? This idealistic state of blessing was sovereignly given to Job by God just before 
the most tremendous right, period of suffering will enter his life. It is in the abundance of his joyful blessings that he will find the deepness of the pain of searing loss. Any child that has lost their, their loving mother understands something of that pain. But any parent who has lost their child understands it even deeper. It's the brokenness of this world that is spoken of in the amplification of those things that have been given to us in its abundance and goodness. But as far as Job is concerned at this point in the story, he's a good and blessed father. He's also a devoted priest. And like I said, it would be inappropriate for any Israelite to go offer sacrifices for anybody unless he is the priest and in the temple or at least in the tabernacle. But Job predates all that and he has a role to care for his own as if he were their priest. Verse 5 says, And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. So this is a great statement. What's happening is he would send for them to consecrate them. He would send for them so every child would be ritually purified. And then he would present an offering a whole burnt offering for each one of them. He was just acting as a good priest. In fact, he thought to himself, right, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. He's worried that they are thinking lesser of God, and as a result of that, they might have sinned. So he rises early in the morning, right, after all their feasting has been done. He offers burnt offerings to each one, and they are almost certainly present as he offers up whole burnt offering. By the way, this phrase for the burnt offering will come in the law in Leviticus 1 and Leviticus 4, will come to mean that it's a consecration of the whole thing. There are times when they bring in a sin offering, right? The innards are given, blood is sprinkled, etc. And then the good parts that are left are given to the priest. No, this is the whole, the whole thing is burned. And the idea in the picture is that this is what I deserve, but the Lord has been gracious to me beyond my deserving, Right? So Job has that, that, that privilege and that devotion to bless his children towards holiness constantly, every single time and every single child. Now let me say something about this idea that Job is concerned. He has this apprehension that they may have cursed God. The word for cursing is weird, right? It's one of those words that, depending on its context, can be translated bless. That's right. It can mean bless and it can mean curse, right? We know that it means curse here because Job says, right, in his heart, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God. It wouldn't be they have sinned and also blessed God. No, it'd be they have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Why would a word be like this? And it answers, I don't know, right? I know like uh, in the greatest decade of, of my lifetime in the 80s, right? For some reason, the word bad meant not just, not, not that it was bad, but it was bad. You know what I mean? Like Michael Jackson would sing about it. That I'm bad, I'm bad, Shimon, right? I'm bad. Like it, it became to mean good, the opposite. I don't know why, but words can be that way. I suspect that the idea of the word means more, or at least originally meant more to speak of a name, of a reputation, so that if it's in a good context, then you're speaking of God, meaning that you're blessing his name, right? Or maybe you're speaking God's name. 
But in a bad context, if they're sinning, oh, they might sin and they might speak God's name. It probably would be translated that they might curse God's name. It's not that they just go, God, I hate you or something like that. In fact, I want you to think of it this way. This is not blasphemy of, her, of, of heresy that I think Job is afraid of. He's afraid of them belittling the reputation and the person of God. It is not a fear of them denying God's truth, but a fear of them denying God's worth. And this makes perfect sense. They're so affluent. They could be partying, having a good time, and realizing this is all because we're good people. Job's good people, right? My dad's good. We're good. We're all blessed. This is what God does to blessed people. This is a, there will be a psalm one day, and it'll say that people like us, right? We prosper in all that we do, right? Like they, they are, it would be easy for them to belittle God because so much good is taking place. And I think that's what Job is sacrificing for, to remind them that they are still sinners and they still need God and his righteousness to cover them because they cannot do it on their own. I think that's his godliness spelled out. So see, you have Job, this godly man. You have Job, this blessed man. You have Job, this devoted man. This is as life should be. So what in the world is going to take place? This is how idyllic life should be for the godly man. So how are we being set up? Why is everything going to turn upside down? What is happening here? And it's to say that in a sin-broken world, it's not that binary. It's not that clear. It's not as simple as you do good and God does do good to you, right? Job, let me, let me say a few things to kind of set us right. Job has not done anything particular to provoke God's judgment in this manner of suffering. His righteousness, his faithfulness, his devotion is not in any way proportional to the suffering that he receives. It's not to say that he's sinless or that he does not deserve right, eternal damnation. Every sinner does, but it's to say that his life and his lifestyle cannot explain this suffering. It means that for us, you cannot manage your life in such a way that you can avoid suffering. If it can happen to Job, it can happen to you. I am not nearly as godly as Job is reported to be. So why do I think that God owes me a more secure life, a more happy life, a more stable life? This is part of the lesson of Job. But is there another lesson as well? We need to realize that this world is broken and the fragility of security, external happiness, and circumstantial goodness, it's only a mirage. Because at any moment, everything could fall out from under us. And I think what Job would encourage us to do is lift our eyes from this here and now to keep beseeching God, keep looking for God and the Savior that he has sent. The gospel that comes out of Job is that you cannot hope in this life alone. You cannot get twisted and think that my goodness has resulted in these good things in my life and think that that is the formula of life. Because you could do good and do excellent and be an excellent servant of Yahweh and you could die on a cross for sins that you have never committed. That is the perfect suffering servant. And that's the one to whom we are to lift our eyes. Not to be dependent, not to place our faith in this life, 
but to believe that our brokenness means that I need a redeemer and I need to look to Jesus Christ, to God the Father, and to the salvation that can only come through a righteousness that is not my own, but through his. It's a call for us to remember again that the greatest blessing that we receive is God's forgiveness and eternal love in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the message of Job. Lord, we know that as we study through this, we're going to struggle. We're going to struggle to understand what is taking place, understand um, what the arguments would be in terms of why these things might be happening. That in our humanness, in our finiteness, we can't seem to put our minds around the why of everything. But Father, we are constantly reminded of the eternal what. That there is a God and that he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life and to sacrifice himself for the sake of our sins so that if we trust in him, we might be forgiven and might be promised eternal life in you. Father, I hope that that would be a message that, that, clear, that rings clearly in the hearts of all those that hear the message of Job. And even as we consider Lord, Lord Job's life, an expression of how life should be, we realize that this is not our world, not until you come to redeem it again. So we look forward, we look forward not to our present, but to that eternal future, the new heavens and the new earth to come. And we know that we only have it because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We praise you for him, and we thank you for salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.